Welcome to Jesus on Every Page, a podcast to help you discover and enjoy Christ in the Old Testament. Each podcast I try to answer your questions about the Old Testament, point you to great books and blogs, highlight the best Old Testament sermons and lectures, and try to also walk you through an Old Testament passage to demonstrate how to find and enjoy Jesus in the Old Testament. I want to start by highlighting one resource that I think you'll really benefit from reading. You'll get the link under the podcast on my blog, or you can Google it, Gifts of the Spirit in the Old Testament. It's on the Institute for Work, Faith and Economics website, and it's written by Art Lindsley. This is a lengthy article, but it's extremely important in helping us to understand the work of the Spirit in Old Testament believers. It's become increasingly common to downplay or even deny the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament believers. The most important section I believe in this article by Art Lindsley is on the Spirit's regeneration and sanctification of the individual. This is what he says, People in the Old Testament were born again and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps, The most thorough source on this topic is a book by Leon Wood, The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, in which chapters 7 and 8 focus on spirit renewal in the Old Testament. Three times in John 3, 1 through 10, Jesus talks about being born again or born from above. In verse 10, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Jesus is saying here that based on Nicodemus' knowledge of the Old Testament, he should have known about the Spirit's role in rebirth and renewal. One example of an Old Testament passage that speaks this language is Ezekiel 36.26, which says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This passage promises a new spirit and a new heart, The hardened heart is replaced with a soft heart. If we need the Spirit now to grasp divine things, would that not also have held true in the Old Testament? How could anyone truly know spiritual realities without the Spirit? Being born again means beginning the process of being restored to what we were created to be. That process includes the development and discovery of our gifts. In in dealing with the difficult passage of how the Holy Spirit left Saul and came upon David, Lindsley rightly does not see this as referring to the saving and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that could not have been in Saul's unbelieving heart and could not have been absent from David's believing heart. This is what he says. In what sense did the Spirit come upon David and leave Saul? It seems that David was given the gift of leadership, commensurate to being a king, while this gifting was taken from Saul. It wasn't that Saul lost his salvation, but that the equipping to be king was taken away. This helps explain why David cries out in Psalm 51.11, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David saw what happened to Saul as a result of his sin, his depression and despair. David knew that as a result of his murder and adultery, the Lord could reject him as king. So he prayed that the anointing, the empowering, or gifting not be taken away from him. 
As I say, this is an excellent article. The only small area of disagreement I would have here is it does seem to suggest Saul was a saved man. I don't actually believe that. But anyway, it's a great article and should really help clarify the role and the nature of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament believers. One other resource I'd like to recommend is a book called The Ancient Love Song, written by Charles Drew. This will teach you a lot, but it will especially move your heart. That's The Ancient Love Song by Charles Drew. I received a good question from Dave after the last podcast on David's last words. He said, I was blessed by this podcast. Just curious though, how do you understand First Chronicles 29.10 and following? which seem to be David's last words there. And the fact that David's death is not recorded until 1 Kings 2. What about the events recorded between these last words in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings 2? Good question. There are a number of attempted explanations of this that you'll find in commentaries. First of all, that they are latter words, rather than very literally the last words. In other words, that... These last words were were spread maybe over some days or even weeks, but still counted as his last words. Second option is, it's generally accepted that the last chapters of 2 Samuel are not arranged chronologically. Perhaps that accounts for some of the confusion when trying to square with 1 Kings. Thirdly, these are the last words that were inspired utterances is another view taken by some of the commentators, and that's supported by the introductory language in 2 Samuel 23. Fourthly, some say they were repeated later as well, that they appeared not only being spoken in 2 Samuel 23, but that they were often on his lips during his last days. Matthew Henry says, those words, especially in verse 5, though recorded before, we may suppose he often repeated for his own consolation, even to his last breath, and therefore they are called his last words. Let's move on, though. We'd like to look today at David and Goliath. In the last podcast, I suggested you look up a couple of uh, articles by Chris Hutchison. They were published at the Aquila Report, and they were entitled Preaching David and Goliath with Balance. There's There are two parts to these articles. Again, I'll put the links uh, to these articles under the podcast on my blog. But um, you could also easily find them, I think, by just looking up on Google, Preaching David and Goliath with Balance. Well, today I'd like to highlight some strengths and some weaknesses in these posts. First of all, I'm very grateful to Chris for his encouraging words about Jesus on every page. Such kind words, though, make it even more difficult to offer some criticism. Second, I think he makes a great point about not being imbalanced when choosing between using David just as a moral example or just seeing David as a type of Christ. This is how he puts it. It has been said that the old approach to this story was to preach David as an example of courage. That each of us must find the giants in our lives, equip ourselves with five smooth stones of some sort, and then go into battle in the name of the Lord to conquer our giant. I suppose such sermons have been preached, a sort of dare to be a David approach. Chris goes on to say, 
The answer, it is said, is to find Jesus in the story. And clearly then, David is a type of Christ in that he is the king of Israel, who conquers Israel's enemy in single combat, just as Jesus conquered the devil. Surely this is correct, says Hutchison. But does that mean there is no application in the story? No sense in which David serves as an example for us? Why can it not be both? And moreover, why must we see Jesus only in David? Is he not present elsewhere? Unquote. Now, there are some good questions there, but it's the last two questions that I feel lead Chris into some difficulties. For example, he says, why must we see Jesus only in David? Is he not present elsewhere? His, his overall point is good. We need balance. We preach David as an example and as a type, not one or other, to the exclusion of the other. But as I hope to show you, it's trying to find typology everywhere that causes problems. Before we get into that though, let me say again just how much I appreciate the spirit and intent of, of Chris's posts. And I especially appreciated part two where I thought he did an outstanding job of using David as an example. It's really the first post about the typology that I have some reservations about. I'm going to give you um, five quotations from the post and um, five comments on these quotations. First of all, under the heading, A Community of Types, he says, We do not just see the spirit of Christ in David, but in others in the story as well. Notably in Samuel, the prophet of God, and in Jonathan, who, in the wake of David's triumph, cheerfully surrendered his claim to the throne in favour of David. Well, I think I would say the first lesson to draw is similarity is not typology. There has to be more than similarity for there to be typology. Here's my definition of typology. A type is a real person, place, object or event that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work or of opposition to both. Now one of the ways to discern whether God ordained something as a type is to ask what meaning did this convey to the original readers? Would the original readers have seen Jonathan as a type of Christ? I don't think so. The spirit of Christ can be in someone without constituting that person or act as a type. The question is not, do we see similarity with the person and work of Christ? The question to ask is, did God ordain this? To be a type of Christ. Coincidence is not the same as divine providence. Similarity is not the same as typology. Let me go on to the second quotation. He says, Now I suppose one could argue that Jonathan here represents the church and her love for Christ, but that comes close to allegorizing the story in my view. But what we clearly see in Jonathan is the attitude of Jesus, as Paul describes in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in fact, Jonathan not only surrenders the throne, but later risks his life for the sake of his friend and for righteousness, exactly after the Spirit of Christ. Then he dies in battle, never seeing the full fruit of his love. And so we must see Jesus in Samuel and Jonathan, as well as David. Unquote. Here's the second lesson I would draw. An example of Christ-likeness is not necessarily typology. An example of Christ-likeness is not necessarily typology. This really underlines what I've already said. There can be similarity without there being typology. I'm glad Chris sees the danger of allegorising the story, but I fear he falls into it. I agree with him that Jonathan shows Christ-likeness, but are we to see every example of Christ-likeness in the Old Testament as typological? I don't believe so. Did God ordain it? Did the original readers see it? I think these kinds of questions help us to discern the difference between simple Christ-likeness and typology. Let me give you the third quote. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armour in his tent. That's a quote from the scriptures. And Chris says, for reasons too involved to explain here, I take this tent to mean the tabernacle as a way for David to honour God. Unquote. Here's, here's the third lesson I would draw from this. Don't make every detail of the text mean something Christological or typological, or even just mean something significant. Um, Chris says here, um, for reasons too involved to explain here, and then he goes on, and, and I can understand why he says that the reasons for this kind of reasoning are too involved, because I believe it it takes really way too big leaps of logic to get from the narrative here to Chris's conclusion. It says his tent, not the tabernacle. And it doesn't say it was an act of worship. So don't make every detail of the text mean something. We, we must be careful not to make every text significant or every detail in every text significant. And in this case, I'd simply see this as a description of where David put the armour temporarily. Nothing more than that. Let me give you the fourth quotation. It says, But why did David take Goliath's head to Jerusalem, which had not fully been conquered by the Israelites yet? It therefore must have been placed outside the gates, likely on a stake on a hill, perhaps a hill that became known as the place of the skull, Golgotha. Well, I wish I could say this gentler and nicer, but my fourth lesson from this is, don't make something up to suit your sermon. And I can honestly say I've done this also myself. So I point the finger at myself first here. But there are a lot of presumptions here in Chris's statement. He says, it must have been placed outside the city gates. Hmm, 
must it? He says, likely on a stake on a hill. Hmm. Sounds more like imagination than likelihood. And he says, perhaps on a hill that became known as the place of the skull, Golgotha. Hmm. This, I think, is just going too far. It's, 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 there's too many perhapses and likelies here. And the must is not a must either. So we've got to be really careful that in our desire to see Christ and honour Christ, we don't just kind of veer into making up things that are not in the text. Let me give you the fifth quotation. It's this. After all, where is Christ later in David's life during Absalom's rebellion as David's son is surrounded and killed by Joab's men? Is Christ with David who cried out, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? Absolutely, says Chris. But who actually did die, surrounded and humiliated, caught in a tree by his hair, asks Chris. And he answers, Cursed indeed is everyone who dies upon a tree. Christ is also found in Absalom, as he dies in our place as if he were the rebel deserving death. And so with David and Goliath, it's not David who dies as a substitute, but Goliath. Dare we find Jesus in Goliath as well as in David? If not, I suggest that we may not understand the depth of the substitutionary atonement, of how for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Perhaps then in the story of David and Goliath, Jesus is not only found in David the victorious king, but in Goliath, the blasphemer deserving of death. What grace this is that Jesus should die in our place. Unquote. Well, Chris says, dare we find Jesus in Goliath as well as in David? And I would say, no, we dare not. Here's my fifth lesson. It's a fundamental rule of typology that the moral character of the type must be the same as the antitype or the fulfilment. In other words, we cannot make something evil the type of something good. Neither Absalom's death nor Goliath's death can therefore be seen as types of Christ's death. However, Goliath's death can be seen as a type of Satan's defeat, a further fulfilment of Genesis 3.15 and pledge of even fuller fulfilment in the future. Remember our definition of a type? A type is a real person, place, object or event that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work or of opposition to both. In other words, you can have a type of a person or a work that is in opposition to Jesus' person and work. And that's what we have here in Goliath. Now, I love what Chris is trying to do here. Full credit to him for working hard to present a case for typology in this instant. And he got a lot right. But I'm just saying, let's backpedal a bit in a few areas to make this more credible. But instead of just critiquing, let me offer a quick alternative that I hope will satisfy I like the way Sidney Gradanis sets this up in his book, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. He says that the Old Testament character's personal history, 
must be seen as part of the greater story of Israel's national history, which in turn is part of the even greater story of redemptive history. So he goes from the personal to the national to the redemptive. So although David certainly displayed exemplary courage in facing Goliath, the author of 1 Samuel was teaching Israel that their national security rested on God's anointed king alone. And above all, the writer was teaching that David's victory was not the result of his relying on his own military skill. He was victorious because God fought for Israel. The personal and national battle is thereby transformed into a momentous chapter in the cosmic, spiritual and redemptive battle that climaxes in Jesus' victory over Satan, initially at the cross and ultimately at Jesus' second coming, when he shall judge Satan and condemn him to the lake of fire and brimstone. So, with that in place, we then ask, in what way was David a type of Christ and Goliath a type of the devil? Let's deal with Goliath first of all. I'm just going to give you ten quick words here, very brief explanations, and I'll let you really make the application of the typology. Goliath then. First, he was an enemy of God, full of malice, full of hatred for God and his people. Second, he was ruthless, ready to take advantage of the weaknesses in God's people. Third, he was armed, 26-foot spear, 15-pound point. Fourth, he was strong. His armour weighed 125 pounds, he was 600 pounds, and he was 10 foot tall. Fifth, he was experienced, a man of war from his youth. Sixth, he was self-confident, dismissed the opposition contemptuously. Seventh, he was frightening. Israel are quaking before him, dismayed and greatly afraid. They saw, they fled, they were sore afraid. Eighth, he's an enslaver. He's saying to the Israelites, you shall be my slaves and serve us. Ninth, he's persistent. Twice a day, he came out to taunt and mock the Israelites for 40 days in a row at the a.m. and the p.m. prayer time. Tenth, he was mocking. He looks at David and says, am I a dog that you should come out and fight with me? So look at these ten words and then see how perfectly Goliath is a type of the devil. An enemy, ruthless, armed, strong, experienced, self-confident, terrifying, an enslaver, persistent and mocking. But now let's, let's look at David. Again, find ten words. First of all, he was sent sent by his father. Second, he was outraged. He looks at this, unser- this, this opposition, what Goliath's doing, and he asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's outraged. Third, he is dismissed. Goliath disdains him and ridicules him. Fourth, he is courageous. He says, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Fifth, he's prepared. God has prepared him by previous, frequent, serious, lonely and successive trials as a shepherd. Sixth, he's confident. He discards the useless armour and takes just five little stones. 
Seventh, he is God-glorifying. He's motivated by God's reputation, by a desire to lift up the name of God. See verses 29, 45 and 47. Eighth, he's victorious. God blessed and directed that little, weak, unsuitable, foolish stone to take down this seemingly untouchable enemy. Ninth, it's substitutionary. The army of Israel stood or fell on David's success. And tenth, he's rewarded. Look at 25 and 52 of 1 Samuel 16. So, sorry, 1 Samuel 17. Again, ten words that just so easily typical of Christ. Sent, outraged, dismissed, courageous, prepared, confident, God-glorifying, victorious, substitutionary, and rewarded. So easy to follow Gradanus's three-step method to move from the personal to the national to the spiritual and typical. And in that way, we can safely and easily see the first ten adjectives as descriptive of the devil and his helpers in opposition to Christ, and the last ten as descriptive of Christ's all-conquering person and work. Music 